0: We are starting a brand new series today in the book of Psalms. We're not gonna go over all the Psalms because all the Psalms are hard. We're gonna, that would be a lot to cover in 10 ish weeks or however long we're gonna do this. But what we are gonna spend our time in is a little section of the Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent. For some of you, the Psalms of Ascent, that might be a familiar term. You, You know exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't, let me fill you in. The Psalms of Ascent start in Psalm 120 and they go to Psalm 134. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Psalm 120. That's where we're going to spend our time today. A couple of things, I think, to help us orient ourselves around these 15 psalms particularly. First is that like all of the psalms, the Psalms of Ascent are still a picture of what worship in the community of faith looks like. The key difference is that the Psalms of Ascent, they have movement to them Um, They're sort of taking us somewhere. Instead of picturing them as psalms that are meant to be sung or recited in a worship service, think of them as psalms for, for everyday life. They're psalms that have movement. They're dynamic. They're not static. Part of the reason that we know they have movement to them is what we have understood throughout the biblical narrative is that the Psalms of Ascent were used primarily when God's people were on pilgrimage back to the city of Jerusalem or back to the temple, now we know that this pilgrimage would happen at least through like the three major Hebrew festivals that were celebrated whether it was Passover or the Feast of Booths or uh, or the, the any of the feasts that were happening there was a celebration that would happen and people from all over the area would find themselves flocking back to Jerusalem, their homeland. So we know that they were used that way. Some people even wonder if they were used when they would arrive in the city and they would be close to the temple. What uh, archaeologists have told us is that there's about 15 steps from the bottom of the base of the temple to the top where you would enter into it. And so what some people think is you would say one of these psalms and then take a step. You would say another one of these psalms and take a step. It was this sort of marking of this journey that they were on as they were heading up. Or some people think that these were even used... When Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the city, helped rebuild the wall. So as exiles are coming from all over the place, they would recite these Psalms to sort of lock them in to what it is that they're heading towards. So to say that they were used for worship, they were used as part of a pilgrimage, but it also, one of the key themes that you see here in the Psalms of Ascent is that Jerusalem, the city, and the temple in Jerusalem become symbols for the sacred presence of God, What the Hebrew people believed is that when they would be in the temple, there was a very tangible, palpable awareness that God was in fact with them. So they're using these psalms as they journey from all over to find themselves back in the very presence of God, which has served throughout church history as a bit of a metaphor for what the life of faith is like. It's going from places where we feel like we've been exiled, where we feel like we're far from home, where life is disorienting, Where life has sort of fallen apart, the very, you know, strings that hold it together have been ripped. And we find ourselves being in a journey back to God. We find ourselves moving from places of disorientation and chaos. As we move closer to God, we discover things like hope and joy and love and meaning in our lives. So these psalms don't just serve as worship, but they serve as a picture of what the life of faith is like. And there's no better metaphor than that it is like a journey. And so what we're going to do is journey through these 15 psalms over the next few weeks. I want to invite you to read along with us, hang out with us as we study these, and come, show up every Sunday as we do this, because I think it's going to help sort of lock in some things with you. Now, with all that in mind, Psalm 120. psalmist writes this, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you, and what more besides you, deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Let's pray. God, it's a gift to stand together with the body of Christ and worship And that worship, we have a sense, means something, not just to to us, but it means something to you. That as we sing, as we pray, as we call out to you, that you are a God who answers us. God, we are thankful for that. That means that we can step into church on any given Sunday with joy in our heart and lift it up to you and you receive it. And we can also step into this space with pain and frustration, difficulties, difficulties in our heart and we can present them to you and you receive it and you take it and you do something with it. So God, that's what we do in this space. We present all that we are to you. We present our hearts, our minds, our hands, our feet. We present every part of us to you and ask that you would speak to us. Would you intervene in this service, Holy Spirit? Would you come be the soft, gentle whisper that we know that you are? Would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you encourage us where we need to be encouraged? Would you set our identities straight where they need to be set straight? God, we love you. We thank you. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. These Psalms inherently have movement attached to them. It's following people who are going from one place to the next. I can remember the first time I ever moved as a young adult. I was 21, 22. I was moving from central Illinois to Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas. Why? I don't know, but I did it. For those of you that love Texas, you're like, I know why. I don't know. Um, as, I'm, as I was moving though, as I was packing, right, there's this sense of like excitement. You're in your early 20s, you're moving out of your house, you're getting out of your old bedroom, your parents aren't there to boss you around anymore, you're like stepping into something new and it's exciting. I remember packing my, my early 2000s Toyota Corolla, it was silver and had a big hole on one side of it, but man, it drove. And I remember packing it, jam packing it full with stuff. I put my most valuable possession in the front seat my television packed it in and you know when you're young you don't really care about things like safety or how you ought to drive so like the 12-hour drive or whatever it was I like held the tv with my right hand and drove with my left hand to like keep it safe so you're just excited you're like moving you're going towards something good but what you're also doing is you're leaving behind right like the things that have happened to you as a kid the things that you've done as a kid any achievement that you may or may not have I didn't have many but whatever they were I was leaving them behind moving on to bigger and better things. My wife and I, we spent seven years or so at that church, and we ended up recognizing that it was time to move on. I would love to tell you it like, ended beautifully, but we were hurt. We were tired. We were exhausted. And we knew that it was time to go move on to something else. So I've only moved twice in my life, and the second time was moving from Texas to Colorado Springs with you beautiful and fine people. And as I did it, you recognize that when you move... When you're married with kids is a lot different than when you move when you're single. Right? The TV in the front seat is not the most valuable possession anymore. But there's things that are important like safety and are the kids in the car and like all these other things. And we were moving because honestly guys, we had just come to the awareness that we had to go. It was time to go. Which is how most change I think happens in our life, especially in the life of faith, is that we have these moments Whether it's the situation you're in is falling apart, whether it's the career that you were a part of has now sort of crumbled to pieces, whether it's the relationships you had have fizzled out, whether it's you've had moments in your own life where you've looked in and you're dissatisfied with who you are and angst and things come to the surface, but you have these moments that just trigger and launch you into movement and change and transitions. And this is just a part of what the life of faith is. And I think what the Psalms of Ascent give us is a clear picture of what that looks like. In fact, here's what I want to propose to you today when I think about these psalms. The psalmist has one real problem that he keeps voicing that is causing him to change, to transition, to move to something, and it's words. It's words. The things that we so easily take for granted, we just throw around, we say in the car, we talk, we say hi to people, whatever. He has, for some reason, become so bothered, so disoriented, so discombobulated by the way words have been used against him. What I want to propose to you today, what this psalm is suggesting to us is that the invitation of faith is to move away from the harmful words that have been spoken into our lives and to find healing in the very words of God. So the invitation that Psalm 120 is presenting to us is that there's an invitation to move away from the harmful words that have been spoken into our lives and to find healing in the very words of God. So what I want to talk to you about today is words. So let's start real basic here. One, words have immense power. In the Christian tradition especially, from the very beginning, there is a recognition that the way words are used can literally transform things. Think about the creation story itself. It is the picture of a God who steps into space and time and creates all of this by doing what? Speaking. He just starts talking and stuff just starts happening. He creates this, he creates that. All things begin to fall into place. He looks at humans and even calls out their identity. Man, woman, good. He says these things. He uses words to create the very world that we find ourselves in. But it's not just that God uses his words to create. What we find early on in the Old Testament is that God is willing to like get into spaces with humans and use his very words to convince them of the kind of God that he is. There's a word that we use for this in the scriptures. It's covenant. Often, God will look at his people and say, I am making a commitment to you, and guess what? You can fail on this, you can bail on this. I am still going to remain exactly who I am and remain faithful to you. So it's not just a God who can create with his words, it's a God who will pledge his love and allegiance to humanity with his words. And I think about the way that God comes in the form of Jesus. He lives, he dies, he's resurrected three days later. We talked about this last week. The Spirit comes in full power. And what is the Spirit, if not a picture, of a God who is just never going to stop speaking to us? Who is like, hey, at any given moment, I'm just going to have stuff to say to you. And what's the beauty of the Spirit also? If it's not the reminder that God is also willing to listen to the words that we have to say to Him. That He is not this God who's like, I've got a bunch of stuff to say and do, and you guys just sit there and do your thing. But the Spirit is this reminder that As we yearn, as we groan, as we cry out to him, he's in fact listening and willing to operate and do things. The Christian tradition gives us a picture of a God whose words have immense power, which means you have been created in his image, your words too have immense power. I think about the life of Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a rabbi, a theologian, and a writer, and after he passed away, his daughter compiled a bunch of his essays and put them together, and He has a quote that many of us have heard around the power of words, but his daughter wrote this in the introduction to it, talking about her dad. She says, words he often wrote are themselves sacred. God's tool for creating the universe and our tools for bringing holiness, or as this psalmist recognizes, evil into the world. He used to remind us that the Holocaust did not begin with the building of crematoria and Hitler did not come to power with tanks and guns. It all began with uttering, evil words, with defamation, with language and propaganda. And this is the line you've heard before. Words create worlds. He used to tell me when I was a child. They must be used very carefully. Some words, once having been uttered, gain eternity and can never be withdrawn. The book of Proverbs reminds us, he wrote, that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Friends, our words have immense power to them. Which means that when we use them, what our words have the potential to do is words determine how we exist in the world. They're not just these sort of generic neutral things we throw out, but they determine how we exist in the world. They determine how we find security and meaning and purpose and identity in the spaces that we find ourselves. In fact, think about what the psalmist says in this. He says the words, he says, He says, too long have I lived among those who dwell in Meshech and Kedar. Now, we don't get this because we don't exactly have a full grasp on like Hebrew geography exactly, but the sentence he just said there, "Too, too long have I lived among those in Meshech and Kedar, is not the equivalent of us saying, too long have I lived among the people of Colorado Springs and Denver. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is more equivalent, too long have I lived among the people of Los Angeles and London which is a ridiculous sentence if someone were to say it out loud. So it means, most historians would say, that the psalmist has probably never lived in both of these places. That would be a real oddity for someone back then. What the psalmist is giving us as a word picture, as a metaphor, of what he feels like among the people who have used their very words to harm him. He feels like he doesn't even know who his people are anymore. He doesn't even know where he is. He feels, as clearly as the word can be defined, completely disoriented. His very existence, his very identity has been shaken, which is why I think it's Psalm 120 that starts the journey of the Psalms of Ascent. These words have been so so powerful, so harsh, so strong that this psalmist, this writer can't help but begin to journey back towards the very God who has used his words to create him. Words don't just have immense power, but they determine how we find ourselves, how we exist in the world, but it's also important to say this, is that words are duplicitous, which means they have the same power to heal as they do to harm. And this is what I want to spend most of our time talking about today, because I think it gives us the clearest picture of what the psalmist is trying to address. Words have equal power to heal and to harm. I think about the way he writes in starting in verse 2. He says this, He says, save me, Lord. He's crying out to God. Whatever has been said to him is so bothersome that he is not, like, dealing with it. He's addressing God. He says, save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you and what more besides you deceitful tongue? And then in verse 4, he says, he will punish you with a warrior sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. A couple things to recognize. One, this psalmist has found himself having lies thrown at him having deceit thrown at him. And what's interesting about like dishonesty, lying, deceit when it happens in our world, when it happens sort of generically, it doesn't really bother us all that much. Even when like a news report comes across and we find out maybe it wasn't as true as we thought, we're like, ah, whatever. We sort of move on. And yet when lying and deceit become personal, when they're about you, like a real human with flesh and blood, man, it hurts It's brutal when those things are aimed at your life. But then the psalmist, go back to verse three for me if you can, Noah. The psalmist then has this very peculiar line that he throws in here, which I actually think determines how we read this psalm. What will he do to you and what more besides you deceitful tongue? Which if one of you said that to me, I'd be like, why are you talking like that? What's interesting about the original language here? is that none of the pronouns that are in the English translation are in the original language. So if you look at this and you take out all the pronouns, those aren't there. Which you would read this and then go, so what is he talking about? There's two ways that this has been sort of translated and perceived. The first way that it's been translated and perceived is that what is being said in verse 4 then, is that he will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows and burning coals of the broom bush, is that this is a description of what it feels like for us to be harmed by words. It's a description of what it feels like. And some of you, if you do some reflecting, would agree with that. You think about what it's like when someone says that thing to you. We know this better than maybe anyone, that words have the ability to cut real deep. That often it quite feels like someone has shot an arrow right into your chest, and it's just there. The pain is there. You know it. Some of you can reflect on moments, even from your childhood. Those moments when someone looked at you as a kid and said, Man, you are just too much. Man, you are just too loud. Or those moments, like on the playground as a kid, where someone looked at you and said, You're not fast enough. You're not tall enough. not strong enough. Maybe they didn't even say the word specifically. You just figured it out because you got picked last for everything. Words have the ability to cut us really deep maybe even more serious ways, there's that moment where the person that you committed your life to, you said your vows with, you said that we'll be together forever, looks at you one day and says, I don't know if I love you anymore. Or those moments where your adult child stands in your living room and says, I don't wanna to talk to you ever again. Some of you have walked through that and they go on their own ways. And they sit there, and they stew. some of you have had those moments where the arrow's been shot at you, and it's been shot at you by people like me, like pastors and religious leaders who have stood, and they've wielded their words in a way that are detrimental to your well-being. They weren't encouraging. They weren't exhorting. They weren't challenging you to something. They leveraged their authority to belittle you. And man, can I just say I'm sorry for that, for people who have done that to you? that was never the space for that. But we know, many of us know what that feeling is when that arrow has been shot into us. But what's so fascinating about the descriptive words that the psalmist use, it's not just that we know the moment we've been shot with the arrow. He says that it hangs around like burning coals of the broom bush. What we don't often get is that the broom bush was known as this hard piece of wood that even after the fire had gone out, there would be this fire that still was rumbling inside of it. It did not go out easy Ever. Even after the coals had gone away and the ash had settled, it would still be holding this flame inside of it. How many of you can connect with that picture? The words have not just pierced your heart, but those words have hung around and they've lingered. So much so that they've actually become definers of who you are. They've determined the trajectory of your life. If someone were to say a word that's even close to it, it would like freak you out. You'd run out of the room. The psalmist says not only do the words have the potential to, like, gouge you deep, they have the ability to hang out for a long time. I can remember the first time I became aware of this phenomenon. As a kid, um, you know, growing up, my mom, every time we would sort of go, like, back to school shopping, we would go to The Gap. And how many of you remember what The Gap is? How many of you still shopping at The Gap? Okay, we had one person in first service. She's really trying to keep them in business. We would go to the Gap, and we would buy, like, whatever. But I remember the Gap used to make these hoodies that said, you know, G-A-P, Gap, and then it said established 1969 underneath it. And I would always try to get my mom to let me buy one of these hoodies. And every time, just profusely, no. I'm like, I'm just asking for a hoodie here. I'm not asking for a lot. It was no. And as a kid, you think it's just your parents, like, whatever, they're just being difficult, whatever. They'll get over it. I remember being a little bit older though and finally asking her like one day she said no again I was like mom why can I not have one of these like it, it, there's nothing wrong it's just a hoodie I'm just trying to be warm out here you know and she looked at me she will tell you she never said this I'm not calling her a liar we're in church I wouldn't do such things she looks at me and goes Rory, I graduated high school in 1970. She goes, everyone in the graduating class before me made fun of our class because we were younger and smaller than them. They graduated in 1969. You will never wear a sweatshirt with the date 1969 (laughs) on it. And I looked back at her And said, so you're telling me I can't have a sweatshirt because of what someone said to you in 1969? (laughs) I never got that sweatshirt. (laughs) And it's funny. But I would bet that there are plenty of us in here who are doing the same thing. You've got words that is someone has like lobbed at you from 30 years ago that you have never forgotten. They affect your relationships now. They're going to keep affecting your relationships. Some of you have words that were said early on in your marriage. You're still married to your significant other. You love them. Things are great. But every once in a while when a really good fight happens, that word from 20 years ago finds its way out. And it dictates the way you even resolve conflict. The picture that the psalmist is giving us here is that words don't just have the ability to hurt, they have the ability to hang around. So can I ask you all a question this morning? I wonder what words we have allowed to live longer than they should have. I just wonder. I wonder if some of us are walking around holding on to things that are actually making our lives more difficult. I wonder if we're actually holding on to words that have actually made our faith feel more like an impossible hurdle to jump over every Sunday. I wonder if there are those of us in the room, if we were honest, would say we have things that have been following us around. And can I tell you what the psalmist is inviting us to? I don't mean this flippantly and I don't mean this harsh. It is time to move on. The Psalms of Ascent are a journey. Which means at a certain point you have to look behind you and go we are moving on from that place we are moving on from those words we are moving on from what that has contributed to my identity we are going to keep going because the words that we wield have the ability to harm and they have the ability to heal you know this words When we find ourselves in broken situations, someone who comes up to us and simply says to us, it's gonna be okay. You know it's not gonna be okay. But those words also just was like balm for your soul. You know when you feel lonely and isolated, completely separated from everyone, and someone comes up to you or someone calls you or sends you a text or an email and says, hey, would you like to get coffee? You all of a sudden have that moment. You go, I know that I'm seen. You know that words can be healing. Those moments where someone comes to you and says, I'm sorry. I forgive you. Would you forgive me? We know that words can be healing. I think about the other day, my wife and I took our kids to the park, and going to the park with a four- and two-year-old is just herding cats, basically. So they're just, like, running around, and you're just, like, following them, and you're just, you're getting separated. We're like texting each other, what side of the playground are you on? Like we're trying, to, we're trying to keep it together, but you're all over the place. And I can tell this story now in hindsight, I didn't fully realize what was going on when it was happening, but I do now. My, my wife and I noticed when we got to the park that day that there was a mom with a couple of kids and one of her kids um, was clearly, evidently on the spectrum of autism. And we're aware of that. My wife has a degree working with kids with special needs. So she's like always sort of keeping her eye out for it. We're trying to help our kids be empathetic and good humans and like, hey, pay attention. Like make space for kids like that. So we're, we're watching, we're paying attention and I'm chasing my, my son and he's running. And I sort of realize that this girl is talking with three other girls all of a sudden. And I hear these three girls look at her and go, why are you so weird? What's wrong with you? Why do you run that way? And I all of a sudden get this real sense of rage in my body. And I see the mom making a beeline for this conversation, and I'm like, get those girls. Get them. I don't know what I wanted her to say to them, but I was like, justice needs to be served. They're destroying your daughter. Destroy them whatever. Listen, work in progress up here. Clear picture of what it looks like when words can harm someone. Clear picture of what it looks like and what we would justify for that mom to be like, tear into them, girl. Like, get them. That mom, with tears in her eyes, crouches down, looks at those three little girls, and says, hey, Am i am crying? You're crying. That's what's happening. I'm crying because you're crying. She goes, hey, that's my daughter, and she has something called autism. That doesn't make her weird. That doesn't mean she's messed up. She's just different than you. So next time you see someone like her, why don't you, instead of making fun of her, invite her to play with you? And I'm watching this, and I'm going, no, but you're, yell at them. Like, do something. And what she chooses to do is teach them how this is supposed to work. What that mom recognized is that the reality is that those of us who have used words to to harm people have often been harmed by words ourselves. And that mom, with the most grace and compassion that she could, is like, let me actually use my words to heal you. Friends, the invitation of the psalmist when it comes to our words is what he starts the psalm with, not what he finishes it with. He says this, he starts this way. I call on the Lord in my distress and he what? He answers me. He says it before he ever complains as if he knows what kind of God he's talking to. That this is the kind of God who is open to hearing his complaints and is also opening to respond to it. And friends, this is the invitation for every single one of us in here. Whether you are someone who sits in this room and who has been brutalized by the words of people, you yourself feel like you don't even know where you are anymore. You have been ripped down, demoralized, insulted, and belittled, maybe even by the people who say they love you the most. The invitation is not to retaliate with the words, The invitation is not to belittle their identity, the invitation is to what? Cry out to the Lord and he will answer you. And for those of you who sit in here, who if you're honest, have used your words to belittle people, can I tell you the beautiful thing about God? The invitation is the same. What you now have the opportunity to do is to cry out to him in deep repentance And he goes, it's gonna be okay. The healing that is available for the person who has been harmed is the same healing for the person who has done the harming. Our God is willing to listen and respond to you. Friends, would you stand where you are as we get ready to receive communion? The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. When he had given thanks, he said, this is my body. Those are healing words, which has been broken for you. Every time you eat, would you do this in remembrance of me? And that same night he took the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant. It is my promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It doesn't matter how bad you have messed up. It does not matter how bad you have been hurt. I will never bail on you. This is the promise of God. Those are healing words. Every time you drink, would you do this in remembrance of me? So I want to invite our communion servers to come forward. There's going to be a set on this side, a set on this side. You're going to come down these center aisles. They're going to serve you a gluten-free cracker, which represents the body of Christ. You're going to take that gluten-free cracker, dip it in the juice, which represents the blood of Christ. Friends, this is the body and blood of Christ given for you. Let me pray over you, and then you're able to come forward to receive communion. God, you are the very word of life itself. Which means every time we speak, it ought to sound like you. Every time we speak, it ought to sound like you. And God, we present to you all the times that we have been spoken to, much like the psalmist, in ways that have not sounded like you at all but have sounded evil and destructive. It's destroyed us, it's broken us, it's hurt us. But God, what we know is that you are a good God who is interested in taking even the places that were meant for evil and turning them for good. So God, as we approach the table, I pray over the person who has been hurt by words that today the invitation for you, friend, is to cry out to God and he will hear you. I also pray over the person who potentially feels guilt and shame and condemnation because they have a history of using words to belittle and hurt others. Would would guilt, would shame and condemnation have no place in their lives? Would conviction and an invitation to love and holiness be the only thing that rests upon them right now? And would we all collectively as the church be the kind of people who cry out to the Lord knowing that you in fact will answer us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, you can come forward to receive communion.